So there you go. We've gone forward in time, excitedly. Um, but we're going to be in Ezra chapter 6 today, so you might want to find that. I'm just going to pray briefly, if that's all right, and then, and then I'll get going. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is living and active. Lord, we thank you that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, we thank you that it's able to penetrate right to the heart of things. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as we look at your word together, Lord, that we wouldn't go out of this room having just learned something, but, Lord, that we would go out of this room having heard your word over our lives. Lord, we thank you that you want to meet with us. Lord, we thank you that you do that as we worship you through singing. Also, we thank you that you do that as we look at your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you might come and meet with us, your people, this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, I used to be an art teacher, so I thought I'd start with a bit of art history today. So this is a sketch for a painting by a famous artist. Most of you hopefully will know who this is by. This is by Vincent van Gogh. And here's perhaps one of the most famous painters in history. He's known for cutting off his ear. Some think it's because he was he he kind of maybe had uh, an, an episode where he kind of lost track of reality. I think he was drunk. Um, I can talk to you about that another time. Um, he's also really well known for never selling a piece of his work in his lifetime. Isn't that crazy? You think about that now. He wasn't famous when he was alive. He lived in France, yet he was from the Netherlands. And so what he would do is um, his family and friends, because he never sold any work. That's why I told you that fact. They never got to see his work. So what he would do is he would draw them sketches of his paintings and he would send them with letters in the post to his family and friends to say, look at what I'm doing at the moment. So they had to kind of settle for this second best option. Rather than actually seeing a, a painting, they just had to look at the sketch. And this is an impressive sketch. I think it's really impressive. It's done with ink on paper. Um, I could keep talking about that if I wanted to. I'm not at time. Um, inspired by Japanese art. Anyway. <laughs> But as, as impressive as this sketch is, it is no comparison to the painting. Can we just put the painting up? <coughs> you know this painting. Well, you should do. This is called A Starry Night. It's hung in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It's been in the UK a couple of times. And if you've seen the real thing, as I've had the privilege to do, if you've seen the real thing, even this photograph does not compare to the real thing. For the sketch, as we saw, is a poor version of what we actually see when we look at the painting. When we read the Bible, I'm getting there, when we read the Bible, what we find in the Old Testament is that God's people, the Israelites, are constantly settling for a second best version of faith. Whether that's worshipping idols made of stone or of metal, wanting to be like the nations that were around them, or just wanting glory for themselves rather than wanting to give glory to God, what they end up doing is they end up settling for a sketch rather than a painting. And their story, and the reason why their story is important to us, is because we can be just like them. It is so easy for you and I to settle for something less than God's vision for our lives. You see, God has a painting for us, but so often we settle for the sketch. Maybe that takes a variety of forms, but let me just give you a few examples. I've said this last time I spoke, but look, if you're not a Christian, maybe you feel like you're settling for a second best version of life. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. If this is itching you, you can't scratch. If your song had a soundtrack, it would be the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. There's just something in you. There's an itch that you can't scratch. It feels second best. You feel like your life is a sketch. 
Or maybe you're like this. I don't, I don't know whether you've, you've ever plugged in a, a, an electrical item with a faulty connection. So I've got a hedge cutter, right? And I cleverly managed to cut through the wire to my hedge cutter with the hedge cutter, which obviously then turned off all the power inside the house as well. Um, but then I had to fix it back together again. And now, every now and again, the hedge cutter doesn't work. And it's so frustrating. You're like halfway through cutting something and it just stops working. You think, why didn't I do a better job reconnecting it? But for some of us, our lives can feel like that. We can feel disconnected. It's like the purpose for which we were designed for, we don't feel like our lives are living into that reality. We feel like, we feel like the sketch rather than the painting. Sometimes we actually want to just stick to the sketch rather than the painting for our lives because we're worried that if we step into maybe, uh, maybe pursuing God, that maybe we'll get hurt or maybe we'll get disappointed. Imagine for a moment Van Gogh's relatives deciding that they were going to travel to France to see him working on this painting, but maybe they didn't dare go because they're worried what would happen if they ran out of money along the way. He was not a rich guy. So they settled for the sketch rather than the painting. And what we find is in Ezra, we find that the, the Israelites do this a couple of times. We, we see this, uh, first of all, they have settled. They, they're in Babylon and they've settled for this kind of like a weaker version of their faith. And then when they get to Jerusalem and they start building the temple, we remember in Ezra chapter 4, they hit opposition and so they stop building. They settle for the sketch rather than the painting. And then it's the prophets, isn't it, that come along, Haggai and Zechariah, as I said two weeks ago. And it's through their encouragement and support that the prophets, they get back on track. The Israelites get back on track. And here in Ezra 6, what we find is, is that the people finish building the temple. They finish the project. But you know, the project of building the temple isn't the painting that God has for them. See, his purpose for them isn't that they just build a building, it's that they do something greater than that, that they step into a lifestyle of worship. And this is what we see happening as we approach Ezra 6. So we're going to read from verse 14. I'm going to ignore a letter that starts the chapter, and we're just going to go straight in at verse 14. So the elders of the Jews continued to prosper and build under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. So these two prophets are there the whole time, continuing to support them as they build the temple. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel, the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house, God, they, of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and as a sin offering for all of Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. They installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and the Levites had purified themselves and were ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all of the exiles, for their relatives, the priests and for themselves. 
So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbours in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. So God's purpose for the people wasn't that they became builders. The building was only designed to help fulfill his ultimate purpose for them, that they became worshippers. And you remember a few weeks ago, before they build the temple, they start with worship. They build the temple and they finish with worship. Why? Because it's all about worship. God wanted a people of worship. As I said when I spoke on that a few Sundays ago, the the shorter Westminster Catechism says that humanity's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, God wanted a people of worship. And if it was true for those who, through faith, found a relationship with God by observing the law, how much more should it be true for us who know God because of the finished work of Jesus? You see, God's purpose for you, God's best for you, God's painting over your life, and not the sketch that sometimes we settle with, is that he wants your life to be a life of worship. (coughs) That you become a worshipper. God wants worshippers. When the woman at the well meets Jesus, he plainly shows her and he shows us this as well. So John 4, 23, he says this to her, the hour is coming and is now here. And it remains here, by the way. When true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Father's best for your life. His intention and his desire for you is that you live a life of worship that you become a worshipper. So how can we do that? How can we live lives of worship? How can we live out a life of worship? Well, it consists of engaging three things. First of all, we need head knowledge. We need to live out of a certain knowledge in our heads. Secondly, it needs to be a heart transformation. And thirdly, it needs to lead to the action of our hands. We actually need to do something. So if we want to be worshippers, it involves our head, our heart, and our hands. So let me just go through these. What's the head knowledge that we need? Well, first of all, the head knowledge that we need in order to be the type of worshippers that God calls us to be, in order to live into the fullness of the painting over our lives, we need to be gospel-centred. In the passage that we've just read, we see the Israelites worshipping through offerings and sacrifices. You see, they knew that they had to get clean of sin. Sin is, for those of you who don't know, any action or thought that runs contrary or runs against God's ways. In the book of Romans, Paul says that we have all sinned. So Romans 3, 23 says that every single one of us, doesn't matter who you are, has done something at some point in our life that runs contrary to God's ways. Each one of us. There isn't a single one or anybody you ever have known who has been able to fully live according to God's ways other than Jesus. And I'll talk about him in a minute. Now, as you know, because I've just shown you some art, I've got an artistic brain. 
My brain is all over the place, all of the time. Go and see my desk in my office. My brain's, in fact, I, so Rachel Budd is amazing, and um, Rachel Budd helps me get organized. And so a few weeks ago, she was on holiday, and she knew that I needed to remember to do something. So what she did is she left me a note, but she knew that I would forget just the note. So what she did is she gave somebody else the note and asked them to remind me about it as well. And then somebody else brought it up in the meeting because she'd asked them to remind me in the staff meeting as well. Because she knows that I'm, I have an artistic brain. So if you're not artistically brained, you think that's disorganized. <laughs> <laughs> My brain goes from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. It's just how I'm wired. And I go from, through cycles in life of trying to be different, but I've realized that actually I'm just, not, I'm just not that way wired. And a few years ago, I've told this, um, uh, given this analogy before, but it's worth repeating. A few years ago, I, I, I bought this app for my phone because I thought this was going to be the magic pill that sorted me out, that stopped me from being artistic and helped me to become organized and mathematical in my brain. And so I bought this to-do list app for my phone. It was before they had them installed on them already. So young people, there was a time before phones, okay? Anyway, so it was just, I bought this app and I thought, this is going to solve all my problems. This is going to, this is going to remind me to do all of the things that I, I can't seem to organise myself. So I set about, I wrote everything in this app that I had to do. And for a few days, it seemed to work. I was ticking off all these things and feeling really good about myself. But then, over a couple of weeks, it started to send me emails and text messages every single day. And what it would do is it would tell me all the things I hadn't done. And the list got longer and longer. And it didn't matter how much I tried to do, I couldn't get everything done on the list. Everything was stacking up against me. And I went from a, a position of feeling great about myself to complete despair that I did, wasn't able to get everything done. God's law is a lot like that app. It is absolutely perfect. God's law tells us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But what we find is that whether you're like me or not, we all find that we're unable to fulfill the things that are in the law. In fact, we often end up doing the complete opposite of the things that are in the law, either by accident or we choose not to. If I was going to take that to-do list analogy a step further, imagine for a moment that the items on my to-do list app were not written by me, but they were written by somebody else. And that every time I didn't do something on that list, I received a fine. I would be in a lot of debt. The Bible says that sin is just like this. That sin is, is breaking the law. It's going against it. And, you know, we all, we all hopefully believe that if somebody breaks the law, they, they should get a punishment for it. You know, if somebody robs your house, you'd want to see them punished for it, wouldn't you? We want to see... Law-breaking, punished. And we find that in the Bible, God also believes, because he's a just God, he punishes sin against him. And we find that in the Bible, the punishment against our sin is death. So in the Old Testament, God made a way, though, for his people, the Israelites, to have the punishment for their sin paid for. And what they would do is they would use an animal as a substitute for their sin. And so we find this in our story. They sacrifice a lamb for each of the tribes of Israel for their sin. It is to substitute for their death. But it was all temporary. For every new time something on the list wasn't done, another sacrifice had to be offered. The writer to the Hebrews kind of almost makes a joke about this and says, imagine the amount of bulls and goats that were, were killed. 
as a result of our sin. What we needed as humanity was one sacrifice, one substitute, one way for all of the punishment, for all of us to be taken away from all of us. And also, we needed somebody to fulfill all of the items on the to-do list. All of the items, not just a few of them, but every single one of us. Every single one of those items. And this is what Jesus does for us. This is the gospel. Jesus comes and he does the thing that none of us can do. Why? Because he's fully God and fully man. He comes into, the, 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 into mankind, into humanity. He takes on flesh, fully man, and he lives the life that you and I could never live. So what he does is he completely fulfills the to-do list of God. And that means that you and I don't have to do it because Jesus has done it. He has ticked off every item on the list. But not only that, his death has paid the debt that you and I owed God. This is the gospel. Once and for all, you are completely free from the debt that you owed God. You are completely free from having to try and tick off things to get his approval. This is the gospel. And if you and I want to become worshippers of God and live out his purpose for our lives, live into the painting and away from the sketch, we need to keep this truth central. Many of you will have heard this time and time again before. This is not the first time you've heard the gospel. But if you want to be a worshipper, you need to keep the gospel at central in your life. It needs to be the knowledge from which everything else flows out of. See, God's purpose is to see himself glorified, and he does this through glorifying his son, Jesus. You and I need to live lives that place the work of Jesus front and centre. Secondly, though, this needs to lead to a heart transformation in us. And the heart transformation that we need to see happen within us is that we develop lives of thankfulness. In our passage, what we find is that as the, 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 the Israelites complete the work on the temple, they celebrate. They say, yeah, we've done it. We've finished it. It's completed. Do you know what it is to celebrate? Do you know what it is to be thankful? Some of us, we, we live with our heads down, forgetting that Jesus is on the throne. So, so we, we go from day to day, just, just trying to get through the day, and we stop we stop ourselves from looking up just for that moment and saying, oh, who's on the throne? Who's done it all? Who's completed the list? It's Jesus. I don't have to. We need to develop lives of thankfulness, being thankful for what God has done for us. And the danger, you see, the danger of living in a consumer culture, as we do in the West, is that we take that to God and we just keep wanting more and more and more and more rather than recognising what God has already done. He's being thankful, having hearts of thankfulness. What it does is it breaks this lie in us that is produced um, in us in, in our humanity is that we can succeed if we just try harder. Ezra is keen to point out that the Israelites don't succeed because of their own strength. If you read the passage through, he points, he points to this. He's saying, look, it's not really Darius or Cyrus or Artaxerxes, but because God was at work amongst them that the temple was built. And one of the antidotes to what I must try harder type attitude is the reflection and thankfulness for what God is doing in our lives. And thankfulness and celebration, just to encourage you in this, also breaks lies over us. As you thank God, you break a lie. And the lie over you, and I, spoke, I said this a couple of weeks ago, remember we, we spoke about the fact that um, Joshua the priest, it says, it says in, um, 
Zechariah, that Joshua the priest was living under the condemnation of Satan. And as we thank God, we break a lie over us that we aren't enough. Because when we worship and thank God, what we do is we declare something back to God's enemies. We say, well, actually, you know, I'm not enough, but Jesus is enough. We break the lie, the lie that we have to try harder, and we walk into the truth that says Jesus is enough. So we need to have heads that know the gospel. We need to have hearts that live in thankfulness for what Jesus has achieved for us. But also we need to step into action. We need to live differently. So we need to live differently. And there's two words I just want to um, bring to you, which is sanctification and separation. You see, the people not only gave themselves over to acts of worship, but they gave themselves over to lives of worship. A response to the gospel and to the work of Jesus could be to say this. And this is Paul gets there, you see. Um, a lot of what I'm saying today, if you want to go and read Romans, I'm basically preaching a, a form of Romans to you this morning. Because Paul, having given the gospel, says this. Well, does, if Jesus has died for us and taken all our sin away, surely that means that we can just carry on sinning. Kind of like a free bar at a wedding. Those of you who have experienced that joy of going to a wedding and finding out that the bar is free. You can have anything you want because it's all paid for. Well, great, I'll keep taking. That is not the gospel. Jesus doesn't pay off our debt so that we can rack up more debt. He frees us so that we can live for him. And as Christians, we're invited into a relationship with God where we can discover the fullness of what it means to know him. And there is an invitation presented to us. He presents it to you. He says this, he says this countless times throughout the, the Gospels, follow me. This means, not, this means not just trying to be like Jesus, this means choosing to follow him. It's not trying to be a better person or trying to be a good Christian. It's saying, no, I'm just going to follow Jesus. And as Jesus' disciples followed him, if you imagine this scene for a moment, these fishermen and tax collectors and this kind of disparate group of people, they gather around Jesus and they start following him. What would have happened over time is that they would have become more like Jesus. They'd have started saying things that Jesus would say. They'd start, maybe they even started to sound like Jesus. They stepped into the confidence of going, oh, I know what Jesus would do in this situation because I know him. I've been with him. I've walked with him. See, we're called not to try harder, but we're called to walk into a relationship with Jesus. And in this relationship, we need to learn to get rid of things in our lives that stop us from following him. And that is what sanctification is. It's getting rid of stuff in our lives that stop us from the pursuit of following Jesus. It's the ongoing work in each one of our lives to throw off things that don't conform to Jesus' way so that we can follow him. You see, we find in our text that the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They became ceremonially clean. They had thrown off things in their lives that weren't aligned with God's ways. As the writer to the Hebrew says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. You are called to a life, if you are a Christian, of sanctification. That means following Jesus and throwing off things in your life that don't conform to his ways for you. Are you doing that? Are you throwing off the things that might hold you back from following Jesus? Or are you trying to carry them with you into your relationship with him? Imagine for a moment that you go hiking with a hiker 
and you try and stay up with them, but you've kept in your backpack all of the comforts that you want to hold with you. You've got your TV, you've got some food from the fridge, you've got a sleeping bag, and they're off ahead, but you are holding on to this backpack because you think it's going to do you good. We can be like that with our lives with Jesus. Sometimes we try and hold on to stuff, and Jesus is telling us to throw it off that we might follow him. So that's sanctification. The people give themselves over to sanctification, but lastly, they also do this. They separate themselves. It says that there's a group of people in this chapter who haven't returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. They were there all along. But it says that they separate themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbours in order to seek the Lord. We see these Israelites entering into a life of worship by living differently from the people around them. If they really wanted to enter into all that God had for them, if they, they wanted to enter into this painting that God had over their lives, they realised that they couldn't just go along with the practices and the beliefs of the culture in which they lived. God's way was so different, they had to step into it. And as Christians, our governing source of authority shouldn't be an influencer, it shouldn't be that funny TikTok video person or that Snapchat person that we watch or the Insta person that we follow. Notice I don't use any of those things, so I sound like I'm really awkward when I'm saying it. It's not a news outlet. It's not a YouTuber. It's not the BBC, Sky, The Guardian, GB News. None of those things are what are our source of authority if you're a Christian. Our authority is the Bible and the Spirit of God. Every other source of authority is a foundation, Jesus said, that is made of sand. It doesn't stand the test of a storm. You notice those pictures in Scotland, the awful pictures of floods in Scotland. If you build your life on any other thing than the gospel, what happens is, is that you will get swept away when things in life come. If you build your life on the authority of a news outlet or a YouTuber or anything else, what will happen is, is that as you hit a storm in life, the foundations will get knocked away from underneath you. We are called to build our lives on the gospel of Jesus and on the spirit of God. Some of us try and do two things at once. We don't want to see too, seem too different from the world around us, so we try and just fit in. But God makes us different. And just to close by thinking about this picture. So at the end of this uh, reading that we read this morning from Ezra 6, there is a festival they celebrate, and it's the festival of unleavened bread. This was a week-long celebration that took place after Passover, where any leaven, that's yeast, or raising agents, so those of you who do baking, like, you know, baking powder or bicarbonate soda, anything like that, they removed it from their cupboards, they removed it from their food. And it was an act of remembering for the Israelites, remembering that the Israelites in Exodus had to leave Egypt in a hurry. They couldn't make bread and wait around for it to rise, so they made something quickly and they left. Why? Because they were being obedient to God, that they had to go. The unleavened bread represents lives that are ready to follow God, ready to step into the purposes, ready to step towards the painting and away from the sketch. But we also see leaven being used to describe sin. Jesus uses it. Paul uses it. Sin is like a little bit of yeast that can work through a loaf of dough and make the whole thing rise. And as we step into a life of following God, into sanctification and separation, what we're doing is we're choosing to be a people who are like a flatbread people and not a hovis people. God calls you to be a flatbread person. That your life is marked differently from those around you. 
But as you walk into your workplace, you see loaves of Warburtons and Hobbits around you in people's lives, but your life looks like a pit of bread. Because you're different. Because your life isn't consumed by leaven, but it's consumed by his ways. Does that make sense? That you say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. That both means removing sin, but also saying, no, I just need to follow. I'm ready to follow him. And so our lives are going to look different. We need to be set apart. We need to be ready to follow. And we need to be free from sin. You know, people who are dedicated to being people of worship are those whose head is constantly focused on Jesus. Those whose hearts are, are thankful for what he's done. Are you thankful this morning? Are you just disappointed? I just encourage you to be thankful. It's something you can actually just do. I'm going to just start being thankful. And lastly, if you want to be a worshipper, you need to live differently. It's not just about turning up on Sunday and singing some songs. Notice, I've spoken about worship all morning, but I've not t- spoken about singing. Because that's, like, that's just like the cream, the cream on the cake. That's not the thing that calls us to worship. Being a worshipper is being different. It's being Jesus's. So I'm hoping what I've said has challenged you this morning. And as we close, I'm going to pray for you. Maybe, it's, maybe you're here this morning and you know you don't know Jesus. Well, you've got an opportunity to come and follow him. He invites you. Come follow me, he says. Maybe there's things in your life. You're a Christian and you know that there are some things in your life that means that real, realistically your life just looks like a sketch and not the painting that God has for you. And you need to put those things down in order to follow him. Or thirdly, maybe you're just not being thankful. And I'm just going to pray for you that God helps you to be thankful in the week ahead. So let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you that you have set us free from the law by fulfilling the righteous requirements of it. Lord, we thank you that we now can be free to follow you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that knowledge. But Lord, we don't just want knowledge to be knowledge for knowledge's sake, but Lord, we want to step into a lifestyle. We want that knowledge to change us. And so Lord, we pray for each one of us that you would help us to be a thankful people. Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who's living under the condemnation and lies of the enemy. Lord, that they might walk into thankfulness this week. No matter what's going on around them in their life, Lord, I thank you for each one of us. We can be thankful for you, Jesus. That no matter what trial we might be facing, we know that you are seated on heaven's throne. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're called sons and daughters and not slaves. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would walk into that lifestyle. But Lord, also I pray for the work of our hands. Lord, I pray that where some of us are trying to walk with you, but carrying a backpack of rubbish along with us, that it does us no good. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to lay it down to follow you. Lord, I pray for any of us in this room who needs to confess their sin. It says in John, John, your best friend said that if we, if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive. And so, Lord, I pray for any of our brothers and sisters here this morning who is living in a sin pattern, Lord, that they might confess their sins, Lord God, to somebody else in our church community, but also to you, Jesus. Lord, we just pray we want to be those whose lives look like flatbread and not like hobbies. You've called us to it. You've called us to be different. Lord, and it says in your word that the world will learn of who you are through us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live differently. And, Lord, lastly, I just pray for anybody here who doesn't know you. I know that there are people in this room who, aren't, who, who don't follow you yet. And I pray for them, Jesus, that they might just be able to feel free to walk into a relationship with you. 
Thank you that it's just an invitation in your word. It's nothing, it, we make it into such a big thing, but Jesus, you just say, come follow me. Come on, come follow me. So Jesus, I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord God, who hasn't yet taken up that call to say, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. Lord, that you might help them step into that relationship. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as we do that, our lives stop looking like a, a poor sketch and they look like a painting. So Lord, we pray you be with us this week in your precious and mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to